Got time for a little Genesis? In school, we were all taught to write an essay. I was taught in high school only to find that my high school education was apparently inadequate because in freshman English in college, my professor indicated that I was a dismal writer. Those were his actual words. But freshman English wasn't a total loss. That's where I met Sylvia. So I couldn't have cared less about the writing, to be honest with you. But when you were taught to write an essay, you were taught about structure. And as we're beginning now our broad look at Genesis after having spent five weeks, six weeks now looking at the Pentateuch as a whole and then one, one week looking at just Genesis, and now we'll begin looking at the text um, chapter by chapter, the Holy Spirit gave to Moses, the author, a structure, a way to organize this. And so I'm going to organize our 10 messages through Genesis in the same way Moses did. If he did it, then I figure I can as well. Moses begins each new important section with the phrase, these are the generations of. He doesn't use the usual Hebrew word for generation, but he uses a more unusual word, toledot, which means proceedings or begettings or descendants. And both in Genesis and elsewhere in the Old Testament, that word is used to introduce a list of descendants or to introduce a tribal genealogy. There's just a couple of exceptions to that. That's almost always the case. Now, in our text tonight, it occurs in the middle of the section, but if you see the first chapter and the first couple of verses, or first chapter of Genesis and the first couple of verses of chapter 2 as an introduction to the entire book, which it really is, then it still occurs at the beginning of a section. The phrase, these are the generations of, is used to move the story along, to move the narrative, and it indicates the focus of God's redemptive history, what's really important. For example, at the time of Abram's father, Genesis eleven twenty seven, these are the generations, Toledot, of Terah. When Terah and Abram lived, this was likely near the end of the old kingdom of Egypt or perhaps right at the beginning of the first intermediate period. If that doesn't mean anything to you, let me put it this way. At that time, the pyramids of Giza still had a new car smell to them. They were brand new. But God isn't giving a world history lesson. In God's economy, the most important thing happening wasn't the building of some of the greatest structures the earth has ever seen. It was a nomad named Abram and whether or not he would be obedient to leave his homeland of Ur of the Chaldees and go to Canaan. Now, I was a toddler at the time, so I have no memory of this particular event, but I wish I did, and the history of it moves me. It was Christmas Eve, 1968. And the astronaut Frank Borman was orbiting the moon in his Apollo 8 spacecraft. And he read a message for the people of the earth. And this was broadcast worldwide. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what's phenomenal about that is that Frank Borman didn't claim to be a Christian at all. 25 years later, he explained his reasoning. He said, quote, I had an enormous feeling that there had to be a power greater than any of us that there was a God, that there was indeed a beginning, and that maybe even our choosing to read from Genesis wasn't a haphazard thing. Maybe it had been ordained in some way. Well, of course it had. He was absolutely right in his assessment, but he based it on a feeling. If he had just kept reading, he would have found out for certain that there is objective truth presented to us in Genesis that not only is there a God, but we know what his name is. We know what his nature is. We know what his requirements of mankind are the bible as we've seen over the last few weeks is all about the kingdom of god 
And as we said last time, Genesis is all about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God on earth under his sovereign care. And so tonight we're looking specifically at the first three chapters of Genesis, and and the text really provides our divisions for us very neatly. Very simply, we're going to look first at the story of creation of the original kingdom, the story of creation of the original kingdom, and then the story of the fall of the original kingdom, the story of the fall of the original kingdom. I could use another outline. We could say we're going to talk about what could have been and what we have now. That's really what Genesis 1 through 3 tell us. So let's look first at the story of the creation of the original kingdom. I I wish I had time to go ahead and read all three chapters, but for the sake of time, we're going to just hit some mountain peaks along the way. And we're just going to walk through this as a story because Genesis is a story. In the first 25 verses of Genesis 1, we see the kingdom being prepared for a human king. Israel was gathered on the plains of Moab before the conquest of Canaan. They needed to know their historical roots. They needed to know their spiritual roots. They needed to know the nature of the God who had rescued them from Egypt some 40 years earlier. And this history included the brief history of the world in which God sets himself apart from all other gods. Israel could operate as a chosen nation to minister to all other nations to make God known to them because Israel and all other nations sprang from a common ancestor, a common creation, Adam and Eve. And so God created Adam and Eve, and now he's educating Israel about their beginnings, going all the way back to the first parents, who are our parents as well. The depth and purity of God's creative power are evident because God brings all things into existence with a word. Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host." This power that's demonstrated in Genesis 1, this is incomparable. You can't really compare it with anything else. You can't measure power which makes things exist just because God wants them to exist. And so Moses is showing Israel as they're trying to understand their history that God has no rivals. He has no competitors. Psalm 96 verse 5 says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Now, if we consider the whole of Scripture, we see that creation is clearly a Trinitarian event. The first two verses read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We have God creating the heavens and the earth. We have the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And considering all of Scripture, Hebrews 1 verse 2 tells us, that in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all involved in the act of creation. In fact, Genesis one twenty six says, plural, let us make man in our image. This is a conversation between multiple persons of one God. And so in the first four days of creation, God makes his initial building blocks of the kingdom that he's preparing for humanity. He makes space, first of all, the heavens. There wasn't even a place to put anything. He had to make the place to put everything in the first place. So he makes space. He made matter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and literally in Hebrew and the stuff, the dirt, the the, the building blocks. So he makes space. He makes matter. He made time in the beginning. There was a moment when time started. He makes wave energy. 
The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. This is a Hebrew word that means to flutter or to vibrate. So wave energy is now created. He makes a specific form of energy, light, and all of the varieties that that entails. He created the form of the earth, which gives it poles and magnetic uh, fields of gravity. He began the rotation of the earth. How do we know that? There was day, there was night, there was evening, there was morning. He made waters on the earth, and he separated them to make waters above the earth. He made dry land, he made vegetation, he made trees, all producing seeds according to their kind. After having made light, he made now the light givers, the sun, the moon, the stars. Very interestingly, the waters above the earth, in chapter 1, verse 7, these are very mysterious, and yet they're very important as well. Psalm 148, verse 4 says, Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. There's a lot of theories about what those waters above the earth might have been. The vapor canopy theory has been popular, but the stars were visible, so that probably won't work. It wasn't a, a foggy sky. Some even think that it was a hard dome, but that argument doesn't hold water, no pun intended. Some think this was simply the hydrological cycle, the rain, evaporation, rain, and so forth. But many feel that that cycle didn't yet exist since Genesis 2, 5, and 6 said a mist watered the ground and that rain hadn't started necessarily. And that cycle, as we know it, can be very destructive. It can be uh, damaging to the earth and to humanity. So that probably is not the case. But we do get some important information in 2 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. This is speaking of the flood of Noah, meaning that whatever the waters above the earth were, that was part of what God used to flood the world. Genesis 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of that month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep, that's underneath the earth, burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. So here's what we do know. The waters were separated from the waters, and that created a unique condition, which is one of the means by which God flooded the earth. But whatever that condition was, it created a vastly different world than what we know now. There would be, first of all, a greenhouse effect in which uh, this is evidenced by the fossil record, uh, a wide distribution of tropical plants all over the world, including Antarctica. All these places that are now uninhabitable all seem to have a similar tropical climate at one time. All the earth would have been inhabitable and essentially had the same climate. Weather patterns would have had no destructive elements to them, no hurricanes, no tornadoes. There would be no deserts and no polar ice caps either. And both ruins and mythological stories of disappearing cities confirm this. And many feel that whatever these waters above were, this is directly related to the extremely long lives that we see in the first few chapters of Genesis uh, even after the fall into sin, but before the flood. You have men living five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred years. And people think that, well, that just means that the Bible is mythological. No, it means that there was a, a, a state on earth that made long life very possible. So that's the first four days of creation. But, but now, after those four days, we get a major distinction, a, a major step up. Until now, no living creatures had been made. And for those of you who talk to your plants, I'm sorry, the Bible says they're not living creatures. 
Now you have days five and six. The waters, the sky, and the land are now filled with every type of living creature. And this represents a a significant jump in the created order. Creatures with minds and wills and functions and, and personalities even. And they are in some sort of relationship with God. The animals are in some sort of relationship. Genesis 1, look with me at verse 22. And God blessed them. That is the animals saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. He blessed them. And so there's some sort of nature to them that's different than the plant life, different than the trees. They have, according to Genesis 7:22, the breath of life, something beyond what the plants have. In fact, the distinction between animals and mankind is not, as many would say, Animals have no soul and humans do. That's not what the Bible says. The phrase breath of life is the same exact phrase used of humanity. We have the breath of life. Animals have the breath of life. The distinction is that mankind is made in the image of God. Animals are not. So we might say we have a divine breath of life. We are different in that way. And now the kingdom is prepared for a human king in the first 25 verses. And then in Genesis 1, 26 through 30, We learn of the creation of the human king and God's instructions to him. Day five and part of day six show a significant jump in creation going to animal life. The rest of day six takes that jump infinitely higher to create a being in a completely different category, one that is made in God's image, in his likeness. Mankind was not an accident. You weren't formed even by a God-initiated evolutionary process that is heretical, that is unbiblical. Mankind was formed by the all-powerful potter from the already created clay of the earth. Isaiah 64, verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Verses 26 through 28 give us what we've called the central directive. We've spent a lot of time on that. That's the theme of the Bible. That's the core direction of Scripture's story. And we could divide those three verses into four important sections. So we'll camp on this for a moment. The first section in Genesis 1.26 we'll call the description of man's nature. The description of man's nature. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God makes man. The Hebrew is Adam, and so that becomes the generic name for mankind and also becomes the specific name of the first man, Adam. In Scripture, by the way, the term man doesn't just refer to males, but generically to all of humanity. This is not a sexist term at all. This is the term that God invented. And so we can say man to speak of a male, or we can say man to speak of humanity. That's God's invention. And this creation of a man... In the image of God, it carries the idea of representation. And here's something that the ancient mind would be very familiar with. When an ancient king conquered a land, one of the first things he would do is he would have statues of himself brought to the conquered land and set up all over the place to say, this is mine and I am ruling here. And so the image of God on earth says, this is mine, I'm ruling here. This was to be very much a king and his son relationship. Sonship is very closely connected to the rulership that God intended for mankind. In fact, Luke's genealogy of Christ even calls Adam, quote, the son of God in Luke 3.38. 
not a divine son, obviously, but a human son. And the implication, of course, is that Eve would be the human daughter of God. So that's the description of man's nature. We also see the description of man's purpose in the second half of verse 26. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. They were to rule and to subdue the creation. And we said last time that having dominion is the idea of treading upon something, of ruling it by stepping on it. These are royal and kingly injunctions. Adam wasn't just a gardener. He was put on earth not to keep a garden as much to be a king over the world. He was to have kingly authority and dominion, and that should have manifested itself in every area of human life. It should have manifested itself in agriculture, architecture, domestication of animals, learning, using energy, using natural resources. Later on in chapter 2, we'll see that the world is filled with resources for Adam to use. That it was his job to transform a very simple world into a complex world to the glory of God. In other words, Adam was to oversee the development of the earth. And if we could take this to its logical conclusion, if Adam had not sinned, ultimately in a, in a perfect world, humanity would have ultimately figured out how to manufacture a city like New Jerusalem that we see in Revelation 21 and 22. That was the point of mankind. They were to have dominion. They were to organize. They were to develop. What is it that sets us apart from all of the rest of creation? We have an insatiable desire to have dominion, to develop. Some of you are, are business people, and you go out and you see, a, you see a blank field, and when others see a field, you see buildings, and you see roads, and you see things that, that aren't there. In Bakersfield right now, there's houses going up all over the place. There are buildings being built. That's us made in the image of God, subduing the earth, not to the degree that Adam could have, but still to a certain degree, at least in shadow form. Then we see in verse 27, God's actual creation of man. His actual creation of man. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both males and females are created in the image of God. Any sort of degradation of women is, a, is an attempt to push against the image of God idea. Women are to be elevated and are to be uh, seen as equal to men in their, in their function, in their glory, in their representation of God. But we could say this, that the comprehensive representation of God is best represented by a man and a woman together. Verse 27 makes this very clear. And by the way, we should note also that the gender of a human being is something that God creates, not something that a human being decides. This was God's creation. And so everything you see in the news today that seems to push back against, against what we hold dear is just pushing back against the created order. And that is man's sinfulness, of course. And then finally, we see in verse 28, God's commission to man to fulfill his purpose. His commission is, verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so they are to fulfill the purpose of having dominion. He is to have a family, which is develop, to develop into clans, which are to develop into tribes, which are to develop into nations, 
which was always the plan of God to multiply and fill the earth. So mankind is made in God's image, in his being, and in his character, in order that he stand in the place of God on earth as his vice-regent, with the subjugation of the earth being exercised through humanity. Now, this isn't some sort of claim that mankind becomes God, but rather he acts on behalf of God in creation, because the earth is very much a gift to us. Psalm 115, verse 16 says, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. And so God is the total sovereign over all of creation. Mankind's rule has boundaries, the fish, the birds, livestock, other land animals, the land itself. Mankind is to act as God, as it were, to the animals. And if you have a, if you have a loyal dog, you understand this. That dog follows you around and sees you as everything and is completely dependent on you. And in fact, we can learn a lot from a loyal dog on how we ought to be with our God. That's how we are to them. Verses 29 and 30 shows us that mankind lived in a perfect creation. And I hate to say this to all of us who love to eat meat. That's another topic for another day. But in this creation, plant life was sufficient for all of your needs. Now, in our day, in a sinful world, that's kind of tough. Some of us like to go get a sirloin on occasion because we feel that need for protein. But even fossil evidence has shown plant life like we've never seen before. I mean, you could, you could walk around and pull a two-inch thick leaf off of a tree and say, I'm going to eat this thing with some A1. This is amazing. <laughs> so all mankind is given all plant life for food. The animals are given the plants to eat as well. Now, why is this important? Because there's no death on the earth yet. The the eating of a plant did not constitute death because a plant doesn't have the breath of life as does an animal or a human being. So what was the dietary restriction placed on man? Well, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, none. There was none at all. And why is this so important? This is important because when God makes his covenant with Israel, Now, dietary restrictions become a central feature of how they'll set themselves apart from the nations as a mark of covenant loyalty. Restrictions of all kinds now become necessary because of sin. So you have this kingdom now prepared. It's a perfect kingdom. We have a created human king and human queen, and the first account of creation is now summarized. The last verse of Genesis 1 Verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So all creation is decreed to be very good. As of yet, sin has not entered the world. Now we have this seventh day, the day that God ceased from his creative work. And this final day is extremely different from the first six days. And this is very important for us. A couple of things are very different. There's no introductory phrase like on the other six days of I and God said. All the other days begin with that. And God said, and God said, and God said, because his creative work now is not required. 
And the second difference is that it doesn't have the usual ending phrase, there was evening, there was morning, and then whatever number day that was. It doesn't have that either. Theologically, this implies that the creation was now intended to have perpetual rest, perpetual perfection provided by God. But of course, that rest would be interrupted by human sin. As a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of returning to the Sabbath rest of God through salvation from sin in Christ. Now, we know that later in the law of Moses, the Sabbath, the the seventh day, would be set up as the identifying sign of God's covenant with Israel. And as such, that Sabbath law is no longer required of us under the new covenant. But I do want us to know this, that the concept of Sabbath is absolutely woven into the fabric of creation itself. It appears long before the Old Covenant. In fact, what evidence do we have of creation before us every single week? We still have a seven-day week, which cosmologically doesn't make any sense. It's still there. It's woven, though, the seven-day week and the concept of Sabbath into the creation account itself. And so it appears for us not so much as a law or a rule to be followed, but as a conceptualization of finding our rest in the creative work of God. It has implications for us for setting aside a day for worship. The church continued on Sundays since the day uh, that was the day the Lord was resurrected instead of Saturdays. And it has implications for trusting the Lord for provision instead of trusting in a seven-day work week. As Israel would find out, a seven-day work week is for slaves and a six-day work week is for sons and daughters. And ultimately, it finds its fulfillment in resting from any attempts to please God with good works, but rather trusting in the saving grace. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That our salvation mirrors the fact that God rested from his works. We stop trying to please God with our good works because we can't do it. And so that is just woven in to the fabric of Scripture here. Genesis 1, this is like a beacon of light that cuts through the darkness. You want to know how to interpret the news. You want to know how to interpret things that happen in the world. Keep going back to Genesis 1 because it tells you everything you need to know. It reminds you of what once was, what used to be. But in the scope of all Scripture, it's also meant to tell you what will be. Genesis 1 doesn't just tell you your past as a human being. It tells you your future. And read Genesis 1 like a travel guide to the millennial kingdom, a travel guide to the final state. I think it's incredible to read Genesis 1 and 2 and then read Revelation 21 and 22. And as we pointed out last week, the parallels are endless. And so Genesis 1 isn't just some dusty story about the past. It is as sharp and as relevant as tomorrow. It is wonderful for us. That is the story of creation of the original kingdom. That's what we have to look forward to. And as much as I would love to close in prayer, we have to do the story of the fall of the original kingdom. Chapter 2, verse 4 begins this, now a second creation account. This is an account focused specifically on humanity. The first account is broad. It's from the perspective of God. The second account is narrow. It's from the perspective of humanity. And while it starts off still in a pre-fall state, The ultimate purpose of the rest of chapter 2 is to explain what we lost in the fall of mankind into sin. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, we see creation from mankind's perspective. 
These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the ground and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, this is very interesting. Day three has already happened. Day three is the time when God made the bushes and the trees and the plants. And yet here in verse five, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. What is that speaking of? Well, by process of elimination, the best option we have is that the bushes and the plants spoken of here in verse five, these are not the things planted by God. As we'll find out later in chapter two, God planting the garden, God creating the trees and so forth. This is referring to a time later when there are the bushes and the plants, fields planted by mankind. These bushes and plants are not only the crops planted by man, but they include the thorns and the thistles. What this is saying is when the agricultural effect of the curse had not yet taken place. This is what's going on. And since the ultimate purpose of chapter 2 tells us what would be lost because of sin, this is likely the best option. Now, you might say, well, how can these wonderful fields, uh, e- even in a sinful world of, of marvelous plants and crops, how can that be part of the curse? Even here in our own county, we see wonderful agricultural output. We drive by fields rich in vegetation, and you might say, well, how can that be part of the curse? Well, some of you here are professional farmers, and you know what it takes to get a crop out of the ground. You're fighting frost and heat, drought, disease, pests, labor costs, machinery breaking down, lazy people, uh, the weather, uh, sometimes a flood, sometimes no water. There's all kinds of things that are fighting against you. As our beloved John MacArthur has said, if you let it, the earth will kill you because it's a difficult place to be. And the crop yield we see today is nothing compared to what the precursed world would have yielded. Speaking of a restored world in the future, Amos 9.13 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. What does that mean? It's the, it's the guy who's plowing the field and he's being overtaken by the person right behind him saying, hurry up, the plants are already coming up. Revelation 22 tells us of the tree of life now in, in the new kingdom and it's yielding 12 kinds of fruit every month. It, it, we've never seen agricultural output like what would have happened before the curse. And so the Lord created man And mankind was created as this holistic being with physical and spiritual aspects to him. He was created to be eternal like God. And this is a daunting thought. If you think about this, every human being who has ever existed still exists. Just most of them not on earth. And the man newly formed from the dust of the ground, he wasn't alone. He knew who his creator was. 
We don't know for certain what form God took to introduce himself to Adam, but Adam certainly wasn't created and awakened to life, not knowing who his maker was. We do know in chapter 3, verse 8, that the Lord manifested himself in some way that could be heard. And the text speaks of the Lord walking in the garden. And so the newly formed man, he's formed with knowledge. He's formed with language. He's formed with skills. He's formed with abilities. He would have to do all of, have all of these things to do what he does later in chapter 2, working the garden, speaking, and so forth. And so this newly formed man looks around, and what did he see? Well, we get a wonderful description of what he saw beginning in chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, that is a nation called Eden, and there's a garden in it, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And so the man is put in a garden which is in Eden, which is a word that means delight or delightful. And the Garden of Eden really functions as the throne room of God on earth. It is the place where human beings could directly enjoy fellowship and communion with the presence of God. It's very interesting that later the Israelite tabernacle and the temple, they have much in common with the Garden in Eden. The Lord is said to walk in both Genesis 3 and Leviticus 26. Both are guarded by cherubim. Both are accessed from the east. A river comes from Eden. Ezekiel's millennial temple in Ezekiel 47 has a river flowing from it. The precious stones found in Eden are also the same stones found in the tabernacle. Both are on a mountain. In fact, in Ezekiel 28, Eden is called the holy mountain. So this is very clearly the temple of God on earth, the place where mankind meets with God. Later in Scripture, Eden is used as a symbol of the reversal, the taking away of the curse of sin in the future. Isaiah 51 verse 3 is an example. For the Lord comforts Zion, that is Jerusalem. He comforts all of her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Now, verse 9, we have both of these two crucial trees located at the center of the garden, meaning that they're likely were standing side by side. You have the tree of life. In some way that Scripture doesn't explain, God used the tree as a source of life, of continued life, empowered by God, of course, alone. He is the life giver. And then we also have uh, the, the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, this is really we might call the tree of decision, And by God's power, it would confer a knowledge that is reserved only for God. And this is, by the way, in striking contrast to how Proverbs says that we're to gain knowledge. It's in the fear of the Lord. In other words, in obeying him. But the tree of knowledge gave the opportunity to usurp the fear of the Lord, to skip that, and to try to grasp knowledge independently. But in eating of the tree, Adam and Eve would experientially know evil because they had committed it. 
the identification, by the way, of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers that don't that they don't help us in finding Eden. People have tried to look for Eden, and it's not here anymore. Um, those are names that were given again to two rivers after the flood because there was a cultural memory of those names, and after the topography of the earth had been radically altered. But this is a land rich in vegetation, in in precious metals, in precious jewels. This is a place where not only could you dig for gold, you could just find it on the ground. Hey, ladies, wouldn't it be great to be walking around and go, oh, look, another diamond. Let me get my wheelbarrow and haul this home. What a great land. And so God gives the man instructions. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 has rightly been called the Constitution of the Earth. The constitution of the kingly arrangement between God and the man. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the man was to work the garden. He was to keep the garden. And we said a couple of weeks ago that that literally means to guard it. He could eat of everything except the tree of knowledge. This is not a call to work for his salvation, by the way. Adam was already created in perfect fellowship with God. It was, though, an opportunity to willingly express his obedience and his love for his creator as an act of worship. And then in chapter 2, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, this records the beginning of human marriage, the means by which God would fulfill the central directive to, to multiply mankind upon the earth. None of the creatures on earth were a suitable companion for the man. And so God created a creature just like the man, the same yet opposite in every way, to be a helper to him, to come alongside him, She would complete the man emotionally, relationally, physically. They would populate the earth with other image bearers who were to fill the kingdom of God with worshipers. Marriage was created originally as a utopic relationship with perfect friendship, perfect union, perfect uh, mind union, perfect body union. The, The marriage relationship was to supersede all other human relationships, even that of parent and child. And in verse 23, we have the first recorded speech of the man. And it is in his joy and excitement over having a partner in life. And ladies, you can take great pride in the fact that the first recorded words of mankind are about you. Verse 23, And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He gives her the name woman, Isha, taken out of man, Ish. And he shows their deep connectedness. They're the same. They're different, yet they're the same. And the conclusion is really a description of a sinless and shameless relationship. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And you might note this. That is the last sinless verse in our Bible for 1,184 more chapters. What a tremendous cost sin would now exact. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we see the failure of humanity to follow God. Enter now the serpent, the one who would tempt the woman and the man. Now the serpent was more crafted than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The possibility that the human race could fall from its perfection existed in the fact that God gave a prohibition to the man to refrain from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the question, of course, is why did God even create this tree in the first place? Why why did the possibility of sin even exist? And the Bible doesn't really even give us a hint as to why in the secret counsels of God this was his plan. 
I think the best we can do is to say that if mankind is created in the image of God, then he's created with the capacity to choose to do right because of love and because of devotion to God, who is his king, who is his sovereign. Ideally, Adam and and Eve would have worshipped God by demonstrating obedience to him. They would have walked right by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for hundreds and thousands of years. And so Adam and Eve were created with the capacity for a genuine choice. Now, please don't mistake this for sinful man having some sort of choice to go back into a perfect state. We don't have that choice. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The choice Adam and Eve have had was a one-way door. You go through that door and you never come back unless the Lord brings you back. The serpent, Scripture identifies him later as Satan, questioned the word of God to the woman who then succumbed to temptation and offered the fruit. It wasn't an apple, by the way. The Bible doesn't say that. The type of fruit is never given. She offers the fruit to her husband who also eats. Now, we can't build a total theology of Satan from this passage alone, but the rest of Scripture makes it clear that Satan is his identity. Ezekiel 28 says he was the guardian angel of the garden. It was his job to help take care of the the human beings. And, And this makes sense to us because this isn't really a commentary so much on talking animals, but on the knowledge and relationship that Eve already had with this creature. She was familiar with him. The male and female were created equal, but with functional male headship. Eve usurped Adam by taking and offering the fruit, and Adam abdicated by doing what his wife wanted. And by the way, that has been the major problem in marriages ever since, is the reversing of God's roles. Sin's consequences were massive. You and I are still experiencing them today. In verses 8 through 13 of chapter 3, the man and the woman hid themselves from God God was walking in the garden, it says, in the cool of the day. And this can rightly be translated in the wind or in the storm or in the tornado. That there's a sense of fear and foreboding. No longer is there this perfect fellowship. Now they're afraid of God for the first time. And they attempted to hide from God. God confronted them. The man blamed his wife. The woman blamed the serpent. And the first instance of blame shifting has now occurred. Something we deal with in counseling all the time. And so the consequences of sin are now, beginning in verse 14, laid out by God. And first, he curses the serpent. And this is a curse both on the the physical animal, but more importantly, on Satan himself. He says that he is cursed above all other animals. And maybe some of you here have pet snakes. I think that's against the code of God at this point. They're cursed. He shall be on his belly. Maybe that means a physical change, but there is at least a a metaphorical degradation that you're low, you're nothing, you're meaningless. There's enmity between woman, the woman and the serpent. A descendant of the woman would crush the head of the serpent even as the serpent would wound that descendant. This is fulfilled, of course, at the cross where Christ is wounded, as it were, in a death that was temporary, but Satan then is defeated for all time. A human king would come and now successfully reign on earth where Adam had failed. This would be the seed of woman, which... 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls this human king the last Adam, who is, of course, Jesus Christ, the Adam who will succeed. So the serpent is cursed. 
And you can go all the way to Revelation chapter 20 and see Satan thrown into the lake of fire to see the ultimate outcome of that curse. And then the woman is cursed. She's cursed with bearing children now in pain. And this is most often taken as physical pain. I think that's certainly part of it. But there's the spiritual pain of the fact that every child, every woman ever gives birth to is going to disappoint and hurt and crush your spirit because they're little sinners. In fact, the very first child born to Eve, how disappointing would that be to have him be a murderer and an outcast? She would be inclined to want to have unrestrained rule over her husband, to nag and to take over and to dominate and to to usurp his position given by God. But her husband would rule over her. The implication uh, that of being in domination over her. And for millennia now, men have been abusing and degrading women. Lamech of Genesis 4 is immediate evidence of this. He calls his two wives in and says, just so you know I'm a murderer, don't get in my way. And then the man is cursed. In verses 17 through 19, because he abdicated his rightful headship by listening to his wife and doing what was forbidden, the ground is cursed. Instead of a perfect earth, the creation itself is now cursed such that the ground will also produce weeds and thorns and ultimately take you back to the ground. The work will be so toilsome and hard that it will take everything Adam has just to get bread to eat. And he will finally live out his days with his body wearing out and he will physically die. But God is gracious. Not only does he give hope of a coming Savior in chapter 3, verse 15, but in verses 20 and 21, though both Adam and Eve deserved instant death because the wages of sin is what? Death. God sacrificed animals for them as a temporary covering for their sin. And in verse 22 of chapter 3, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden. The tree of life is now off limits. And you may say that's a horrible, cruel thing, but it's actually very merciful of God, of God to live forever in a sinful state, in rebellion against God. That would be terrible. Better to die and be resurrected into a sinless perfection in a later age. The Garden of Eden, the place that God communed with mankind directly, is now off limits. This isn't just a statement saying that I'm taking the garden away from you to punish you. It's I'm taking my direct relationship away from you. You cannot see me. You cannot walk with me. You cannot speak with me. You cannot be with me. And they're kicked out of this. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken Just a little reminder there, Adam, you're dirt. In verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There is literally a time when Adam and Eve could look and see this angel with this flaming sword blocking the way to all that they remembered and longed for. But the fact is that they could look back and see that they lost everything. And now, all relationship with God would have to be mediated. Adam and Eve are banned from the place where they could meet with God. 
And as Adam and Eve are banned from direct communion with God, so also all of humanity is banned because they would produce sinful children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren who would fill the earth with wickedness and iniquity. And the rest of the Bible is all about how to get us back to the garden. That's the story of the Bible. So the original kingdom is gone. It's done for now. But in the book of Genesis, there's a little hint. There's a little thread of hope, a little golden thread that gives us hope. 88 times the verbal and the noun form of the Hebrew word for blessing occurs in Genesis. It's just this little, these little lights, blessing, 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 and it's still coming because someday there will be a new Eden. Someday there will be a new creation, and this will come through Jesus Christ, who is the new Adam. And the rest of the Bible is the story of humanity being offered the opportunity to get to Eden, to get to the kingdom, and this only comes through Christ. And so if the idea of living in a perfect kingdom with perfect human beings in perfect fellowship with a perfect holy God is appealing to you, the problem is is that you too are banned from his presence. And you too cannot get back to the garden. There is, a, there is a, an angel with a flaming sword blocking your way. And you must have a mediator. You must have somebody to negotiate on your behalf. What do you have to give in return for eternal life? You have nothing. You have nothing to give and negotiate. You have nothing to offer God. And therefore, to pay for your sin, the Lord Jesus Christ has offered to be your mediator, to be the payment for your sin, so that that angel with the flaming sword might move aside and you too enter into perfect fellowship with God. The rest of the Bible is getting you to Eden. And that's my hope and prayer that you know the Lord Jesus Christ so that you too can have the joy of returning to a future kingdom which mirrors a thousand times more the original kingdom. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for those who were baptized, who have publicly professed their faith in Christ. We give the rest of this evening and this week to you. We pray, Lord, that every person here would know the Lord Jesus Christ so that they too could be kingdom citizens, that they too could be forgiven, cleansed of their sins, and enter into the glories of what used to be and what will be once again. We pray these things for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen.